Welcome to episode five of the Birding Life podcast. My name is Adam and I'm your host. This is the podcast where we discover birds and the people that pursue them. Tonight, I'm excited to announce our first international guest, all the way from Denver, Colorado in the United States, Pulitzer winning journalist, author of three books, including the book that the movie The Big Year was based on. I am pleased to introduce Mark Omazic. In this episode, Mark talks about his writing career, how a book about birds became a Hollywood movie with big name actors, how the story inspired people around the world, as well as some cool birding stories from his local patch and beyond. Be sure to stay connected to the end of the podcast, where I will tell you how you can win a copy of Fancy Peacock's book for kids, Fancy's Bird Book. As always, the Birding Life podcast is proudly associated with BirdLife Port Natal, the bird club that covers the greater Etiquini area in KwaZulu-Natal, South Africa. Before we chat to Mark, I'm going to have a chat to Nicolette Forbes, the chair of BirdLife Port Natal. So again, I want to welcome Nicolette to the show. It's always good to chat about what's happening in the life of the club. So we've been speaking over the last few weeks about the benefits of being part of a local bird club. One of the big benefits for any member of a club is the opportunity to grow as a member through the various platform that, that clubs have. How does BirdLife Port Natal provide opportunity for growth and learning for its members? Hi, Adam. Thank you for including us in your podcast again. It is a great way to profile what the, the Bird Club does. Just to maybe step back from that a little and just talk about, as a local Bird Club, BirdLife Port Natal covers quite a large geographic area. It basically operates within the boundaries of Etiquini municipality in terms of, of drawing most of its members. But anybody outside of that area is also welcome to be, and is. We have members actually that are placed all over the world, including the UK and the USA. So we have quite a wide membership, but our geographic area is the Etiquini municipality, which covers all the way from the outer west suburbs and through to the Tongat River in the north and down past the Umkamazi River in the south. So in that area, we cover a species list, a bird species list of about 520 species, which is quite a good proportion of KwaZulu-Natal's birds. So a local club can be a little bit of an elastic concept, but what the club does do is it really enables people to get to grips with bird identification, to socialize, to have security while they're birding. And we do this in many, many ways. So we have over 80 activities that we put on during a normal year, and I say normal in inverted commas. Obviously, during lockdown, some of those activities are curtailed, but we would generally have a number of different outdoor activities that would be walks, maybe workshops, weekends away, as well as indoor meetings and talks and presentations, all of which serve to try and help birders learn a bit more about birds and their habitats and the various conservation activities that are ongoing within the country and the province, as well as helping new birders to have experienced birders guiding them when they are out in the field and also if with any questions they may have. And for that, we have a number of different communication channels. So we have got an email group which allows us to communicate with all the members and the members to com communicate with each other and ask questions, post photographs. And we now have a, a WhatsApp group, which is also allowing our members to very quickly mention if there's something in their particular area that is noteworthy, a more unusual bird or a very exciting bird to see within an urban area, which alerts people in the different suburbs very quickly to go out and have a look, as well as asking identification questions if they're not sure of a, of a particular species they are able to post a photograph or a call and ask the members of the group what they think it is and for help with deciding or learning how to identif identify that species. I think Nicolette on Monday we had a really good example of how this works in the club and why I think it's so valuable to be part of a bird club. We've got our, our WhatsApp group, as you mentioned, and one of our members put a picture of a raptor on the WhatsApp group. And I don't know if you just want to share a little bit about how we came to the conclusion of what bird that was. And that was a really exciting bird. 
Yes, it's, it's one of many uh, identification questions we've had. We often get people posting swifts, for instance, and raptors are very often the, the things that create problems, and then some of the seed eaters. So we've just had somebody asking for help with how to tell the difference between red bishops out of breeding plumage and pintailed waders, and, and that's one of our newer birders. But the particular raptor that you're referring to was posted from a Durban North sighting. Once somebody had gone back and looked at it, they decided it seemed to be a species of kite. And the jury is actually still out, but it created a, a lot of interesting dialogue and, and going backwards and forwards as to what particular species of kite, whether it, it be a black kite or a yellow-billed kite, um, very out of season, most of them have gone, they are migrants, and, and which one this was and how we could tell the difference. Unfortunately, as I said, the jury's still out on that one. We haven't really made a decision on exactly what that species is. But that's part of the fun of being part of the group and being able to talk these things backwards and forwards amongst members that maybe don't know their birds too well yet, and those that are much more experienced birders. I think what is really exciting is the people that you're able to connect to. So that Raptor picture went online, and obviously the other pictures you've spoken about, and we've got people who are part of the club, who are part of that WhatsApp group that are incredibly experienced in the area of identification and different species of birds. And I think the, the good thing about that is it's, it's good for birders to learn that experienced guys can also make a mistake and acknowledge it and then speak about why and also just realize the depth of the birding knowledge that some of the people have. So while people are, that, are, that are new to the club are still just starting to interact and learn how to go about an identification, you know, how do you start even deciding what the bird you're looking at is? There are other people there that can do it within the blink of an eye. And, and that's a, a great mix to have. And it, it makes for a very interesting and fun dialogue between all the members. So Nicholas, you've spoken on all these different platforms. Obviously, there's the Facebook group, there's the WhatsApp group, there's a whole lot of different forums that members have access to. So how can someone who's listening to this who's maybe not a member of BirdLife Port and Cell, how can they connect to these platforms so they can be a part of what the club is doing? That's a very good question. And it's something that we, we debate and I've actually discussed this with other birders from outside the country in terms of how we best go about including and, and maybe in some cases not including people who are not members. But what we like to try and do is start bringing people in from outside the circle of membership, because it's obviously very good for our birds to spread the word, to have more and more people interested and aware of birds. So some of our platforms are members only, and it becomes a perk of, of having membership. But non-members are welcome to basically nearly everything. So our activities that we offer every month, and then there's more than eight, usually more than eight activities a month, those are open to members and non-members. The only difference being that members can attend them completely free, while non-members will pay to come to a presentation or to come on a walk. And that's just to cover some of the costs that the club incurs as part of that, whether it be teas and coffees or keeping registers and things like that. So when it comes to the indoor and outdoor activities, members and non-members are obviously both welcome. The Facebook pages, we've kept the Facebook group and the official page of both, well, for, for BirdLife Port Natal completely open. So members and non-members can join both of those. The WhatsApp group and the email server that sends out news and events is only a membership perk. So there has to be part of being a member, there have to be some perks for your membership and, and that's basically what it is. You also end up getting the free quarterly magazine where you get a magazine free um, every month as a member posted to your inbox. So that's also another perk of membership. But that magazine is also eventually posted out on the website so anybody can read that and link with it and see what the bird clubs around KZN are doing. And the last big question is, how can people join the club? If anybody would like to join the club, it's a very simple process. You just send an email to blpn.members at gmail.com and say you'd like to join and I will send an application form to you and process your membership. Or you can go to our website at www.blpn.org 
www.membershipmarketing.org and there there is a section on membership so you can see what membership entails. There's also a form which you can download. It's a, P a quick PDF which you can fill in and send to that same email address that I mentioned earlier and your membership will be processed. Thanks, Nicolette. I really appreciate it. Like always, we'll put the links into the comment section of this podcast and you'll be able to click on the links and get all the information about the Bird Club and yeah, just how to join up and how to become a member. So thanks, Nicolette, for being part of the show again. I really appreciate you giving the time. Okay. Thanks very, very much, Adam. So, Mark, it's a real honor to have you on the show tonight. It's not often that I get to speak to a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. So, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, before we chat about the book, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, I was a career newspaper reporter for many years, doing the stuff that generally you'd expect to see on the front page of the newspaper, which is man at his worst. It was murderers and rapists and politicians and sometimes even worse. And I had just come off of, uh, I was the lead writer when our newspaper won the Pulitzer Prize for coverage of the Columbine High School Massacre, which was the first major school shooting in the United States. I worked on that story for probably six months and came away really personally drained and hurt. At that time, we had two kids and I would work from six in the morning till midnight and Kids were asleep generally when I came home, and all I could do was give them a kiss on the forehead while they were asleep and hope for a better day. And so I had come out of covering Columbine uh, and needed a break, really. And so one day uh, I was just trying to line up some fun stories to keep me sane before I switched from going from covering Columbine to moving over to politics and covering a, a U.S. Senate race. And so I found that there was some place called the American Birding Association, which was just down the road from uh, my home here in Denver. And I called up one day and said, what do you got? And what they had was a New Jersey industrial roofer who had spent a year of his life chasing birds. At that point, really, my only exposure to birds and birders had been pretty much watching the Beverly Hillbillies on TV with Miss, Miss Jane Hathaway. And I think she had a, there's maybe a, a British uh, colonel wearing a, a pith helmet. <laughs> and this uh, New Jersey industrial roofing contractor was nothing like the stereotype that I'd had of uh, birding contractors. He was really smart and he was really fun and he was just utterly obsessed. And when I found out that he had competed for a year uh, with a Fortune 500 executive and then a man who was a software programmer at a nuclear power plant. I was hooked. I loved the people and came to love the birds. So the question I was going to ask there is this obviously is a birding podcast. So when you started writing the book, you weren't into birds at that time. No, I really didn't know much about birds. You know, a lot of journalism is just being a, a translator. Uh, you're with generally the best in the world at any particular topic, and you've got to translate what they do for a broader audience. Uh, and you have to be able to uh, report and write on two levels. One, of course, is you've got to be faithful and honest uh, to the people who really, really know their stuff. And then you've got to know, you've got to really be an explainer to the people who can't tell a, you know, a robin from a sparrow. And what really became remarkable to me is I started this story because I love the people. They were kind of grown up Tom Sawyers, uh, adventuring with all the breaks off uh, around, the, around the continent. But then what I really came to love was the birds uh, and just this fantastic natural phenomenon, uh, migration, which is kind of hidden in plain sight. And I realized that I could look in my backyard in Denver, Colorado and see a creature that was no bigger than the pinky on my hand. So light, this hummingbird was so light that you could mail 10 of them for the price of a first class postage stamp. It weighed less than a tenth of an ounce. And yet 
this creature every year would go from Mexico and cross the entire uh, Gulf of Mexico to, to end up uh, on migration through Texas, Louisiana, Alabama. And if they touched their wings once on the water, they died. But they had to, to do this hundreds of mile passage and generally they did it at night. And here, <laughs> this, this little tiny creature that just a few weeks ago might have been thousands of miles away in Southern Mexico or Nicaragua, you know, here, here they are in the Rocky Mountains of uh, the United States. And most people see it and just don't really give it a second thought. It's really a great miracle that, and, and an incredible natural phenomenon that most people never give a, a second look to. And so I started the big year hooked on the people, but then really became uh, enamored or in love with the birds themselves. And they changed my life. You know, now I'm really a a dangerous person to drive with. You know, I, we don't have a sunroof in the car. I guess we have a hawk roof or a raptor roof. And uh, uh, it's, uh, you know, when, when, when somebody cries duck, uh, I look up. It's really uh, a fun way to look at the world. It's a really great way to get into birding. What is your current life list on? Well, it's funny you ask that. I've got several different uh, life lists. <laughs> You definitely are a birder. I mean, every birder has not one list, has multiple lists. It's like, which list are you talking about? <laughs> sure. Well, that, that was actually fun when I started working on the book to, to, to learn a little bit about that. I, I met people who, I talked to people who had life lists of uh, birds they had uh, heard or seen on television. And then they had a life list of birds that they had uh, uh, seen, but were incorrectly, they had the wrong uh, call uh, on television. <laughs> that were on them. You know, I've got, I, people have uh, fornication lists. People have defecation lists. I had a above timberline list. I live in Colorado where we've got a bunch of 14,000 foot peaks. What is that? What is that for? That, that'd be what? 4,000 over, you know, over 3,000 or almost not quite 4,000 meter peaks. But uh, you know, I, the, the list that I've been working on now is, is one for my home state of Colorado. I just saw a lifer yesterday. Actually, I rode my bike uh, 30 miles round trip to be able to see it. I felt that uh, if we're in quarantine for COVID, uh, if I'm riding my bike to see a bird, uh, I'm okay. So I saw a yellow-crowned night heron, which is mostly a bird of the, the North American East Coast. And we're out west, so that was uh, that's a pretty sweet bird for here. But I've got that. I've got a I've got a timberline list. I guess I've got a North American list. And then, frankly, last year, uh, you know, one of our sons had a summer job in uh, in Cape Town. And so we came to visit him and got to add some South African birds too, that were, what a country, what, what a place. It was spectacular. It was just a, it was a trip of a lifetime for our family. We had a blast. So you spoke a little bit about it, but what is your local birding patch and what kind of species would you see on a regular basis? Uh, well, the local patch would be this place in the mountains of Colorado. It's at about uh, 8,500 feet. It would be on you know, maybe a short drive away from the, the western gate of Rocky Mountain National Park. And so the birds really vary by season. Uh, in the winter at our feeders, we get a lot of uh, high altitude mountain birds, pine grosbeaks. I mean, the, the, the big one, the big prize are rosy finches, three different species, which are birds that live almost their whole lives above timberline unless winter storms uh, drive them down lower. And that is to our feeders. The crazy thing is, and actually a really sad thing is there's one bird, the brown cap rosy finch, that uh, the only place that it is known to nest in is my home state of Colorado. Uh, what's really sad is that in our lifetimes, just in the past 50 years, uh, populations of this bird have plummeted by 95%. And it's almost like we're witnessing a, uh, an extinction in our lifetimes. And the crazy thing is this bird isn't really migratory. And because it lives above timberline, which, you know, here in this state is usually at about 12,000 feet above sea level or, you know, what, what, what's that about you know, 4,000 meters. It's, it's really not facing many development threats. And so, uh, you know, the, the thinking is that it's really climate change that's, uh, that's having at the species. But, but between the, uh, uh, the alpine species that, uh, that we get, uh, now uh, we're in the throes of spring migration. Uh, Wilson snipe are having pretty much of an orgy <laughs> out in the irrigated meadow in front of our house. We get some boreal owls that uh, 
that we hear. Uh, and then waterfall come through. We've got nesting great blue herons, uh, spotted sandpipers, and, and now uh, just arriving for the first time uh, for us are the yellow warblers that you know, are coming up from, uh, from Latin America. And uh, they, are, they are spectacular. They, these are, these are you know, birds that you almost have to pinch yourself when you look at them. You can't believe, you can't figure out why the hell something evolved to look so spectacular or beautiful. And then, you know, mountain bluebirds, which it's almost as if they're carrying batteries uh, because the blue is just so radiant in a mountain bluebird. And they usually start showing up in February. They're early nesters. Just the brilliance uh, and luminescence of that blue against the snow. You know, if, if that doesn't warm your heart, then uh, you, you are a cold person. <laughs> they are gorgeous creatures. I remember when I read your book, it's a South African birder. I had your book in one hand and I was, had my computer and Googling all the names of the species that you were mentioning. And I think a lot of birders, as we listen to this podcast, are probably going to go and Google these birds and see how they look. And I think this is what's so cool about this global birding community. It just allows us to experience birds that we might not experience ourselves, you know, in our lives. Oh, I, I, uh, this book was written kind of before the internet era. Uh, if I could write it now and write it with hyperlinks that you could click on as, as you read, that would be fantastic to be able to see pictures, uh, videos, uh, descriptions of, of the birds. That would be, that'd be wonderful. But, but frankly, as, as a naturalist, uh, you know, one of the greatest pleasures is to travel somewhere you haven't been and just hear a completely alien dawn chorus. When you wake up and the birds are going, man, when, when we were up near Kruger in South Africa, it was just, the, it was, the sounds were alien and uh, both terrifying and just wonderful. To me, that's one of the really cool things about birds is that, you know, you can, in the United States at least, you can find a Starbucks anywhere. You know, you, you, can, you can find, I don't know, you know, a, a big uh, retail department store anywhere. But birds are fussy. You know, birds only want to be in one particular spot. You know, they just want to eat a, a certain food or, or be in a certain kind of habitat that only exists in a few places on earth. And so if you want to see them, you've got to do it on their terms. And so not only are the, the birds themselves spectacular, but I also really love the places they take me. I mean, if it weren't for birds, I would never have become a semi-expert on sewage lagoons because they're such a great place for shorebirds, you know, or, or dumps, landfills, uh, frankly, you know, that they're, they're such a great place for ravens and, uh, and gulls and, uh, and just out of, out of the way backcountry places that, I mean, here, here in Colorado, I mean, we're really famous for, or known at least for our mountains and our ski resorts and mountain biking. And, and yet uh, so many of the great birds uh, in this state are out on the Eastern Plains, the high plains, uh, where there are farms and it's and it's flat, but that's where the birds are. And so, you know, I love to ski. I love to to hike peaks. Uh, but man, this time of year, May, I'm out on the plains. You know, I'm I'm watching migration where uh, you can find uh, groves of trees that uh, uh, you know we're we're kind of the high desert. Uh, so there's not a lot of water, not a lot of uh, terrain, and in some ways, you know, pretty similar to to South Africa without the awesome mammals like you've got, but uh, but uh, during migration, you know, the, uh, if you've got a really sparse landscape, but then all of a sudden, you know, a grove of cottonwood trees around a, uh, around a waterhole, you know, birds drop from the sky. They want a break on their great trip north on, on migration, and, uh, and, and the birds turn over every day. So it's, it's, it's really a wonderful thing to be able to see the eastern plains and, and places that I otherwise might not go. Birds, birds bring me there. So what other books have you written besides The Big Year? Uh, well, I did The Big Year, which uh, had a, a wonderful run. Uh, was a bestseller here in the States, uh, published in a number of different countries. They made a movie out of it start with uh, Jack Black and Steve Martin and Owen Wilson. And uh, for me, after spending time with uh, three guys who could answer the question, uh, if you had a year of your life, to do the one thing you really wanted to do, what would you do? <laughs> well, I was around them for quite a while and wrote that story and saw how invigorating uh, it was for them. I set out to do something that I had always wanted to do as well, which is uh, climb the highest 
mountains of my home state of Colorado. There are uh, 54 or 58, depending on how you count them, uh, mountains over 14,000 feet in Colorado. And I tried to get up all of them in one summer, which is uh, basically June, July, and August. So three months, uh, 55 or 58 mountains. The premise of that book, it was, uh, what can you do when your body's best days are behind you? <laughs> At this point, we had, uh, we had three sons and, uh, you know, I got to be, uh, my best sport maybe became eating <laughs> and drinking. And, uh, you know, it, it's, I, I, it got to be really frustrating because I, I could remember what I could, what I used to do, but I couldn't quite do those things anymore. I couldn't hang on the rim in basketball anymore. You know, I couldn't blast up uh, the same hill on a bike. My deal with my wife was that I couldn't climb any peaks alone. Uh, and so to find climbing partners, I mean, I had to get up 58 peaks in the summer. I basically did what I always told our kids to never do, which was to find total strangers on the internet and sleep with them. Uh, we would go camp at a trailhead with hopes of uh, leaving, leaving before dawn to, uh, with hopes of getting up a mountain uh, the next day. And it was just, you know, it was fantastic. I got to say when, at least for me, when you hit a certain age, you know, at that point, I guess I was in my, my 40s, uh, I had really great friends, but I had the same set of friends for a lot of years. And uh, what a wonderful way to meet new people and just to share a common goal and a common passion of uh, getting up a peak, you know, some of which were really pretty hairball. And my experience before this, at least was with men, at least, uh, you know, men generally don't really talk to each other, have really heart to hearts unless they're either drunk or watching sports. <laughs> the one big exception to this rule, I think, was uh, mountaineering. If you're above Timberline, especially on some of the peaks out here, uh, you're really entrusting your life to your partner and vice versa. Your partner really has to expect a lot from you. And though these were people I was meeting for the first time and they were strangers, you know, we really had to build a, a great degree of, of trust and get through lightning storms and avalanches and landslides and it was a wonderful time. And I, you know, I spent the summer uh, doing it I, and I, I lost 15 pounds getting up the peaks, but then I, uh, I had to hole up in my uh, office for uh, six months afterward writing. And so if I lost 15 pounds climbing the peaks, I think I gained 20 back uh, writing about it. Right. I'd, I'd rather be in the field than writing, but uh, you know, that's, that's, that's part of the gig. So that was my second book. And then, and then my third book, uh, my most recent book actually, which is another bestseller here, in the States is that uh, I found out about it when I was doing the, uh, the bird book for a time, the greatest place in North America to see uh, rare birds was this Island called Attu, which was the westernmost Island in the Aleutian chain of Alaska. It is, you know, it's, it's really far West. So far West, they actually draw the international dateline around it to be able to keep North America on the same calendar page. It's farther West than Fiji about the same longitude as New Zealand. And yet it's still part of North America, part of the United States. And for a time, it was the greatest place in North America to see rare species of birds. They'd be migrating, Asian birds would be migrating north and get blown off course by these ferocious North Pacific storms and birders would hang out and you know wait for a lost bird to land on this treeless volcanic island. Well, when I was researching the history of that island, I learned that Japan had invaded and conquered it during World War II. It was the first American soil lost since the War of 1812, the only ground battle of World War II fought on North American soil. And I actually had a really awful casualty rate. Uh, it was exceeded in the Pacific War of World War II only at Iwo Jima. And I just wondered, how come I didn't know this? And so that came to be, you know, but, but, but I'm, I'm still, I'm, I'm a journalist and I'm interested in the stories of people. I'm not a military historian. But then when I found out that there were two men who had fought each other on Attu, one was a, a very poor Appalachian coal miner and the other was a surgeon from Hiroshima who had gone to college in the United States and fell in love with the United States, but was drafted against his will to fight for Japan against the United States. I found out that they had fought each other and that afterward the two families had spent more than 40 years trying to find each other and reconcile and find peace and atonement. Uh, well, I got, 
I got hooked into that story as well. And so I was actually, for that book called The Storm on Our Shores, I was actually able to visit Attu Island. Nobody had lived on that island full time for 10 years. Nobody had landed a plane on it for two years. I mean, the closest civilian population is 500 miles uh, away. It is, it is way out there. It is remote. You know, if something goes wrong, you're, you're really stuck. And so uh, we went there for, uh, we camped on the island. It's home of this bizarre natural phenomenon called Willowaz. Attu's actually got some of the worst weather on earth, which is part of the reason why it's fantastic for birders. Uh, it's at the confluence of the, the warmer uh, North Pacific currents uh, and then the, the really cold currents from the Bering Sea. And when they mix, you know, hot and cold together, it's crazy. You get this natural phenomenon called Willowaz, which are these spontaneous, unpredictable hurricane force winds that just they rocket from the, the from the, the icy tops of these 3,000 foot volcanic peaks down to the shore. I, I got knocked on my ass a bunch of times by these Willowaz that, that, that just came out of nowhere. There, Attu has only eight days a year that are free of snow or rain or fog. It is a, it is a tough place. And so uh, I went there and did a television story on the Battle of Attu in my book, the, the two men who had fought each other. And it was uh, to be on an island that's, I think, 15 times bigger than, than Manhattan in New York and not have a single resident and realize that you're 500 miles from the nearest person. Remarkable. So let's chat about the book, The Big Year, A Tale of Man, Nature, and File Obsession. The book came out in 2004. Can you give us a short rundown of the story for those who might not have read the book or watched the movie? Uh, sure. It's about three men in a race to break the North American birdwatching record. Uh, kind of a, a mad, 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 mad world, but for birds. And the uh, three main men, one is uh, a New Jersey industrial roofer, uh, who was actually the reigning big year champion, uh, kind of a man's man. He had made it to the top of uh, a mobbed up business uh, in, in New Jersey. There's a lot of mafia in that business, but Sandy had done it best I could tell, totally clean and honest and, and ethically. He's kind of a tough guy, really. He's got a, a voice that starts about three floors below the basement. He just fell in love with birds, or I don't know, maybe as Sandy would call them, birds. It, it was just a lifelong love. Uh, he had done a big year before, but thought that he could do better. And, you know, some birders, especially competitive birders, are obsessive. It just bugged him that he thought he could do better. And so he did, or he set out to. Uh, second guy is a guy named Al Levinton, who actually grew up really poor in the Bronx. And the first time he ever got out of the concrete of the city, was when he went away to Boy Scout camp where he fell in love with birds. And I think birds for him just became a symbol that there was life somewhere outside of New York City. And Al went on to build a really big business career, uh, CEO of uh, a big company, ran a, you know, a large division of a, a major company. And uh, he was a United Premier 1K, <laughs> which meant that he was traveling, I think, over 100,000 miles a year. And he had done that for something like 15 or 20 years in a row. Uh, he definitely knew how to withstand pain and punishment. He couldn't, he had to put his love of birds on hold while he was building this big business career. You know, his, his main thing was reading Christmas bird counts uh, that just kind of reminded him that there was life outside of, of business. And finally it came time for him to retire. He built a big trophy home on the ski slopes uh, near Aspen and uh, told his wife, uh, Hey, I've had this lifelong dream since I was a kid, a boy scout of, wanting to chase birds. And his wife, you know, she was ready to retire. Her husband, she raised their kids pretty much by themselves. Uh, her husband had been out you know, making a lot of money, being successful in, in business. But she was also a marriage counselor. And she had seen plenty of marriages break up uh, over this notion of uh, somebody who just had to, to, to make too many compromises. And she said, you want to do this bird thing? And that's what she called it, a bird thing. <laughs> Go out and do it. <laughs> Al didn't have to be told twice. He did. And then actually the really sweet thing was Al did. He, he ran a ferocious big year, set off, and you know, got confronted by mountain lions and border patrol with, with guns and, and everything. And in the end, what he really concluded was that he missed his wife. So it was really pretty sweet. And then the third guy was a guy named Greg Miller, who gets probably more hugs per mile than any man I've ever met. Greg 
started his big year on January 1st because on December 31st, his divorce went final. The divorce was personally a devastating thing for him. Uh, he had grown up really religious, uh, Mennonite in an Amish community. His dad was actually the large animal veterinarian for the, the Amish. And uh, Greg was really concerned that his divorce uh, would bust up the relationship between himself and his father, his birding partner. And so Greg, on January 1st, the new year, freshly divorced, needed something to just kind of rebuild his heart, rebuild his, his faith. And so he would go out and chase birds. And, that, and at night, then he would call his father for strategy and say, Dad, Dad, you know, I've, I've, got, I've got this ticket down to the Florida Everglades to see American flamingos. But, oh, no, here's a Zantusis hummingbird of a little bird that's supposed to be in the Baja of Southern Mexico, and somehow a, a, a typhoon blowed off course, and now it's in Southern Canada. Which one should I do, Dad? Which one should I fly to go see? And little by little, the, the father and the son together uh, patched it up. I mean, Greg ran that whole big year pretty much out of his wallet, <laughs> and he ran out of money. He had to go to the bank of Dad several times for loans. Uh, at one point, he tried to get into Yellowstone National Park, and uh, he had so little money he had exhausted, I think, three or four different credit cards, and they actually turned him away from the gate because his uh, credit limit no more, so he couldn't get into Yellowstone unless he got some more money. But he had a life-changing experience as well. And so the three guys are out there against this this fantastic landscape, uh, you know, not only of a landscape of geology, but you know, the landscape of hope. These uh, beautiful creatures, birds that change day to day, and uh, it's 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 an exhausting, but a thrilling and invigorating thing. This is all taking place before the 9-11 era, so plane travel was much easier. Sandy, I think, spent over $100,000 in one year just chasing birds. They learned, I think, a lot about the United States, uh, a lot about Canada and Alaska. I think they learned a lot about birds, but I think mostly they learned about themselves and what their hopes and fears and, and dreams are. And I just, I just came to conclude, you know, I mean, so many people live their lives with the brakes on. I mean, these guys took it off. What a fantasy to, uh, I mean, if you had a year of your life to do whatever you wanted to do without financial constraint, without family obligations, without career obligations, what would you do for a year? You know, would you, would you run a big year in, in South Africa? Would you, would you do it across the entire continent? I mean, what a, what a magnificent dream that would be. I know some people who have done a big year. The guest on last week's show, John Kinghorn, did that and the stories that these guys have of doing big years is amazing. You know, some people are content to remain in their backyards and it could be a great place. You know, you can, you can garden, you can build a really tidy or, or very beautiful little landscape or terrarium uh, back there. The birds will change, the insects will change, flowers will come and go, you know, to, to go big and to, to tackle the, Logistical challenges, you know, I, I really, uh, to, to, to see things that most people haven't seen and to do it with time pressure, you know, to, you have to beat the clock. And then for me, I mean, just a, a, a crazy thing, you know, I, like, like we talked about in the outset, I came out of the newspaper business and I, I covered a lot of politics. So I'm used to people just lying to me routinely. And here I had these three guys in the big year who are, at least in their minds, in a kind of a high-stakes thing. They're devoting a year of their lives to see more birds than anybody's ever seen in North America. And that's the question I always got from people who aren't birders. Well, don't they lie? Don't they make stuff up? And, you know, coming out of politics, I expected these three guys to lie. And I tried to, you know, I've got my bag of tricks <laughs> from covering senators and governors and everything. And I tried to trip these three guys up and find a lie or, or, or something that was on the up and up and damned if it happened. It just, they were totally ethical. They were totally upfront. They, they, they were kind of honor bound by this tradition in a big year that even if you're competing against someone and if you found a good bird, you're kind of ethically obligated to show that bird to even your competitor. And they did. And, and I asked Al Levinson, the, the CEO about that. And he said, yeah, he said, you know, so you could, I guess you could probably cheat in a big year. He said, but if you cheat in a big year, who are you cheating? What are you doing a big year for? I mean, a big year, there's no trophy. There's no cash prize. So if you cheat in a big year, who are you really cheating? 
So how did the book end up becoming a movie? It was a really great movie, one of my favorite movies of all time. But again, it does not seem like a topic that would have become a popular movie. No, I mean, frankly, I was really surprised when somebody said they wanted to do a book on competitive birding. <laughs> I got two different uh, movie offers. One was from uh, Disney. The other was from uh, DreamWorks, which ended up wheeling the project around to 20th Century Fox. And, and they made it kind of a crazy thing. It's a nonfiction book. Uh, I wrote about real people, real events. I'm a journalist. You know, my, I don't make stuff up. Hollywood definitely does. They change quite a few things with the details of the, of the story. You know, I, I, I talked to the director quite a bit, and he tried to stay true to the themes, uh, following your, your muse, uh, just the simple but elegant uh, natural beauty that people just don't, if you don't stop and look for it, you'll walk right past it. And that's what birds and, and their habitat is all about. Uh, and then there's, there's just, I mean, frankly, there's the excitement of uh, uh, being on a treasure hunt. I mean, if you're a kid or an adult or a grandparent or whatever, just the thrill of discovery uh, is universal. Not everybody's got the hots for birds. You know, not everybody's in love with birds. But, you know, I think a lot of people are uh, really passionate about something. You know, maybe they want to see all the great football teams or rugby teams or, uh, I don't know, they, they want to make the best biltong or the, the greatest red wine. Uh, but just the uh, the notion that, you can uh, just go for it. Take the brakes off. It's really invigorating. So the movie starts some of Hollywood's biggest actors. We said it earlier, Owen Wilson, Steve Martin, Jack Black. How did it feel seeing your movie on the big screen and having not just any actors, but these actors playing the characters that you wrote about? I can say pretty confidently, I think our three sons have never had a picture of me on their Instagram or Facebook pages or whatever, but they damn right have had a picture of themselves with Jack Black and Owen Wilson and Steve Martin on their pages. Uh, you know, we went to, we went to visit the set when they were, when they were making the movie, much of the, much of the movie was filmed on a movie set in Vancouver, Canada time. Our youngest son was about five years old and a wild thing on a movie set. is just that, you know, there, there's a lot of waiting around in between scenes. And food is a big thing on a, on a movie set. And so, you know, early in the day, they, they've got these, you know, sandwiches that come through or burritos or eggs or whatever. Well, at the end of the day, they had these carts full of chocolate. <laughs> and our five-year-old found out about it. And he would just load up. And he, I just remember once he had found this cart and he came back and his face is like all smeared with chocolate. I don't know, it was like chocolate mousse and chocolate candy bars and you name it, all the chocolate was there. Unlimited. I mean, think of what you would do if you're a five-year-old. And he's got it smeared all over his face. And then the director calls out, quiet on the set. I said, man, you do that. <laughs> My five-year-old's totally wired on uh, sugar and chocolate. You tried to get him to be quiet. But, but the director actually had kids of his own. And he was really fun. And Jack Black was especially was really sweet with our kids. You know, I, One of our kids' favorite movies was always uh, School of Rock. He was really fun to, to talk with and go back and forth. And then on set, you know, Black. And then Steve Martin is actually a really accomplished uh, on the banjo and uh, Jack Black can play guitar and sing pretty well as well. They would kind of riff off each other. And it was, it was really, it was fun to watch, you know, Steve Martin, there are different generations and Martin, in a lot of ways really kind of changed comedy, at least here in the States and to see Wilson and, uh, and Black with Martin who had kind of been a trailblazer in comedy and, and just go off each other. I mean, I think, I mean, obviously it's his job and, you know, they're, they're doing it for, for, for those reasons, but I think they really kind of enjoyed it'd be like me meeting uh, Roger Tory Peterson or David Sibley, <laughs> but for them, you know, for black and for Wilson, they got, they got to meet the guy who changed the rules of uh, comedy, Steve Martin. So that was uh, pretty wonderful to see. And then, uh, and then a wild thing though, was, you know, ult ultimately uh, it, it's a nonfiction book. They made a fictional movie that was, uh, what was the first line that they put on the screen in the movie? Something like, uh, all the facts have been changed or something like that. <laughs> so I had to introduce the movie without having seen it uh, at a screening. And that was, uh, that was kind of terrifying, but ultimately, uh, you know what? It was, it was a, it was a pretty movie, fun to watch and, you know, it helped get a couple of our kids through college. So, so it worked out. I don't think you'll actually understand the impact that this movie's actually had. And obviously the movies had the impact because of the book you wrote. Almost anyone that asks me to explain birding to them, one of the easiest ways to explain birding is to say, just watch the movie. 
It's amazing how many people, both birders and non-birders, have actually have watched the movie. Honestly, one of my favorite movies. I've seen it probably three, four, five times. I watch it again and again. I love the movie. Read the book two, three times. It's it's really, really a great movie and a great book. Uh, well, thanks. I really appreciate that. And that is something that really has hit home for me. You know, I'm I'm a writer. I'm a, I'm a storyteller, but just the the impact of a movie is humbling for me. And in fact, you know what, for me, there was a really sweet kind of moving story just out of the blue. There was a kid in Durban, uh, South Africa, who I guess was uh, struggling on the, on the spectrum with some Asperger's and really doubted himself and having a hard time in school, didn't know what he wanted to do. And he saw the movie and his parents who were really sweethearts uh, said, you know, we, we need to change our lives here. And they did. Uh, and so this family, the Crick Maze, set off and did a big year of their own that included, you know, a large swath of your continent. They made it over to South Africa, or I'm, I'm sorry, South America as well. And Josh Crickmay, the boy, he's actually a fantastic photographer and did a, uh, a book, of like a coffee table or a picture book that's really wonderful. And he talked in that book about how the big year had uh, that movie uh, had kind of changed his course and showed him a different direction. And, and I've gotten a lot of letters uh, and emails and, and posts on Facebook from people who have had, you know, similar experiences. And that's really moving to me. It's almost when you do a book, it, it's like having a kid, you know, you, you do your best you try to instill the lessons that uh, you instill, but ultimately it goes out in the world and it's, it's seen by people uh, on, on its own terms. And just to think that, that there's a book and a movie that inspired people to be outside, to take a different view of the world where we live and inspire them to challenge themselves, push themselves on a personal goal. You know, how many birds can you see? How many, National parks, uh, can you visit to, to see birds? Uh, in the case of the Crick Maze, uh, how can you just have really a fantastic year of family traveling together, going places and being both exhilarated and scared to death, <laughs> the unknown and, and dangers that you can see? I, I definitely didn't set out to do that, but you know, for the three guys uh, who I met and who did the big year and, and let me tell their story, I'll just be forever grateful. There's so much bitterness, so much ugliness in life, hopelessness, but we want to find that glimmer. You know, we want to find the thing that motivates us to keep on. And, and these three guys, uh, I think, you know, they started out to do a big year for themselves, but they inspired a lot of other people along the way. And that's, uh, that's really cool for me as a translator, as a journalist, to be able to get that theme uh, out to a bigger audience. I think it's like you said, you almost started writing the book about birds, but the, the story is about family. It's about reconciliation. It's about pursuing your dreams. It's about all these things wrapped up. The birds are an integral part of the story, but it's almost as if there's a story alongside the birds that, that also is connected to the birds, but it's also just, it's graded in the birds. I mean, the thing I love about birds and birding is that you can do it on so many different levels and really be happy. You know, you can be in your backyard and, and hang up a feeder and see uh, a ruby-throated hummingbird or here, you know, in the West or North America, a broad-tailed hummingbird, this creature that's the size of your pinky and it's in your backyard. Or you can and do the, the, the North American flycatchers, which to me <laughs> look like they're cloned. But the, the easiest way, you know, the, the, the main way to tell them apart is by call. Greg Miller, one of the guys I wrote about, I, I, I tell you, I can recognize probably most Rolling Stone songs by the first uh, few notes. I mean, Greg Miller could do all 650 North American uh, breeding birds just by their call. I mean, he could do night flight uh, migration uh, calls as well. So you can, you can do something really basic and be happy, or you could do something at the highest expert level and be happy. And it really, uh, you know, I, I, I like to hike mountains as well, climb mountains. And uh, there's, a, there's a famous quote from uh, Lowe, the uh, mountaineer, 
who said that said the best mountaineer is the one out there having the most fun. Does that mean that you are, uh, uh, you know, scaling, uh, you know, 513 uh, sheer technical walls, or does that mean that you're you're hiking up a peak uh, that poses no technical threat or danger? The answer is yes. If you're having fun, and if you've got joy and enthusiasm, go for it, baby. And uh, that, for me, is what birding is about. You can be a backyard birder. Uh, you can be a patch birder. You can be a chaser. You could be a competitive birder. And ultimately, you know what? If you're at a dinner party or a cocktail party, you could all talk about the same language. It's really cool. It's pretty fun. So uh, something I've always wondered, did any of the actors from the movie get into birding as a result of being part of the movie? Uh, you know, not that I know of. I know that uh, Greg Miller, uh, before... Before the movie started uh, shooting, Greg Miller was the guy who ran out of money during a big year. And one of the things I felt pretty good about was for the movie, I got planted the seed and the director did it. Uh, he hired on Greg as an on-set uh, consultant for, to try to keep it kind of technically more accurate, at least, than a lot of movies were. I mean, it drives birds out here nuts that no matter what bird might be showing on the screen, you know, it might be a, a thrush or even a hummingbird, directors always like to throw in the call of a red-tailed hawk, you know, that that screech. So Greg was on set to try to prevent that from happening. Anyway, and, and in some cases he succeeded, some cases he didn't. But but before the movie started shooting, uh, Greg went out in Stanley Park, the great big park in uh, kind of like your, uh, was it Kirschenbosch? On Cape Town. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, a, a spectacular place, lots of birds. And he went out with uh, with Jack Black. And Greg said it, you know, he Greg was getting, oh, you know, look, there's a married fresh. Oh, look, there's a uh, you know, there's a, there's a boreal chickadee and Jack Black could care less. He said that all Greg said that all Jack Black did was look at Greg and Greg asked him, what's up? And he said, Oh, you know, black, black is an actor. And he said, I just, I want to see what a burger looks like when they're in the field. You know, if you're not a burger, then you think that you spend your, your whole time with your binoculars uh, up, you know, pressed against your eyes when the reality is you don't, you're looking for movement. You know, you're especially listening for things. And uh, you don't have your binoculars up all the time. And then, you know, how do you act when you see a bird? And what do you say? You know, out here it's, you know, I got the bird. I got the bird. I mean, where does that come from? You got the bird? I mean, in technical English, no, you don't got it. But <laughs> that's just the jargon here, at least. And so uh, Black was picking up, uh, he was picking up that kind of thing. So, yeah, just let's chat a little bit about some birding stuff. I saw last year that you visited South Africa. Which places do you go to? And what were some of the highlights of your trip? I got to say in Cape Town, the highlight was the food. <laughs> what a fantastic place to eat. You know, the, the, all, all the different uh, cuisines, but you know, we went out to, we went out to Robin Island. Uh, our son had done some refugee work with, uh, it's called Scalabrini, I think. He's a college student here in the States. Uh, and so we really, we surfed for a couple of days out at, uh, was it Musenberg? We climbed uh, Table Mountain or hiked uh, Table Mountain. And it's just, uh, what a what a spectacular place it was terrific uh and then we went up to uh up near kruger at uh, manuletti and you know that's uh <laughs> that was a trip of a lifetime that was really spectacular you know we had seen a pride of lions that had taken down a giraffe and it actually worked out really well because it seems like a lot of people who go to you know outside game parks are really focused on the big five or, or whatever they are but we had said that, you know, hey, we've, we've got we've got one person in our group of five, you know, my wife and our three sons, one person who likes birds. And uh, so sure enough, we got hooked up with a guide who was actually really good with birds. And I think that uh, a lot of times the guides who know birds are maybe just more experienced or acute naturalists. And so really, we just had a, we felt really lucky. I think we had, we, we had a fantastic guide who put us on a lot of stuff. You know, just boy, the notion of doing that with the with the family, where you you know you rise before dawn and uh, and then and you're out in the field for the, the sunrise, and then you know you come back uh, during the heat of the day and you know play games, and then go out again for uh, for an evening drive. Man, I just uh, what a place you live in. <laughs> you are really at least for for uh, for nature or natural landscape. What what a place, unparalleled. I mean, it's really, I, I, that was really a fantastic trip. 
So with the COVID-19 outbreak, the tourism industry has been hit big time. In South Africa, tourism is one of our key financial contributors to our economy. A lot of people that listen to this podcast are in the South African ecotourism industry. As someone who's traveled to the country as a tourist, what advice would you give to those in the ecotourism industry? What are birding Americans looking for when they come to South Africa? Well, I mean, there, there's, there's all kinds of different people who have all kinds of different uh, needs or wants. You know, I, I, I got to say, I, I got the sense that the guides uh, uh, we went out with in Manuletti, they were kind of relieved to have the pressure off to always be big five, always be big five. And they were just kind of into finding birds. Uh, it's a, it's a change of pace and they knew the birds, they knew the species, they knew where to find them. And it was just off the beaten track. You know, you don't have to always be looking for the vultures, you know, to get the kill that the, you know, so that the, 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 the lions and the, and everything else is on it. So so I, 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 you know, but, but I definitely heard a number of, you know, not horror stories, but just people who were disappointed in that they had told guides uh, before that they were interested in birds, but, uh, you know, but some guides weren't interested in doing anything different. They, you know, really just uh, only wanted to show people and find, you know, the big mammals for them. So, so I, you know, I would say that if, if people are interested in birds, you know, hopefully the guides uh, will show them to them. Um, we'll, listen to the, listen to the customer. I mean, where I live in Colorado, it's, it's also a big tourism based uh, uh, economy and uh, people have all different kinds of reasons to want to go out. You know, I'm sure there are people who want to go on safari to be, uh, you know, pampered and given massages and eat fantastic meals. You know, with our family, we wanted to be in a place we'd never been before. And, uh, we wanted less of man and more of nature. So the place where we went you know, did a fantastic job of, uh, of working with us uh, on that. So I guess, you know, just the main thing would just be to, to listen to what people request. So the last question I want to ask, as you've matured as a birder, what are some things that more experienced birder Mark would have told new birder Mark? Well, <laughs> I don't think matured is a good, uh, term because I still feel like a, a little kid. <laughs> I, I, get, I think a big part of it is, is don't grow up, you know, don't, don't ever be that know-it-all. Don't ever be a scold, you know, don't ever be one of the, oh, I've already seen that. Don't be that, don't be that guy. Be fun, be enthusiastic. And, uh, you know, one of my favorite quotes, uh, I, I can't even remember who said it. I think it's a, a famous American burger like Pete Dunn or somebody like that who said the difference between a new burger and an experienced birder is that a new birder has misidentified a few birds and an experienced birder has misidentified thousands of birds. So birding is humbling. You know, even, even the best make mistakes. They call out the wrong uh, bird. They misidentify something in the field. And so they are humbling. But the main point is that you can always learn something new from them. If you learn from your mistakes, You'll be a better birder, and uh, so I guess that uh, what uh, what the many years, uh, the many misidentified bird uh, me would tell the new the new birder is uh, be gung ho, keep up your sense of enthusiasm, and don't be embarrassed about mistakes. Try to learn from them. So yeah, I just want to encourage anyone who's listened to the podcast. If you haven't watched the movie, you have to see it. But more than that, I think. Mark, what I've really enjoyed is listening to just how you describe different birds and the experiences you've had with the birds. And I, I really think, you know, just watching the movie, you miss a lot of that. I enjoyed the movie, but I, I really, really enjoyed the book. And I really encourage people who are listening, just get the book. The movie's great, but the book, I, I don't know, just unravels the story a whole lot deeper than the movie, than the movie ever could have. The movie's uh, fun. It's got beautiful pictures. It's got interesting characters. But uh, ultimately, this is still this is still one of my favorite uh, questions to ask of somebody of, of people to get a conversation going at a dinner party or a cocktail party. Name a movie that is better than its book. In general, if you like the subject, you'll find more nuance and uh, subtlety and, uh, and and character development. Uh, you'll find more of that in a book than you will in a in a movie. Movies are great, but movies are movies. 
books at least have the chance to give you a fuller, uh, more nuanced uh, description of position. And, you know, people ask me uh, sometimes, uh, why do I do nonfiction instead of fiction? And I look at three guys who spend a year of their lives, hundreds of thousands of dollars traveling tens of thousands of miles at the drop of a hat. And I just say, you know, if I tried to write that as fiction, nobody would believe me. <laughs> so what happens in real life, combine three guys like that with just this natural spectacle of migration and a sky full of the descendants of dinosaurs, birds. That's something that you can't make that up. It's uh, truth is better than fiction in a lot of ways. Well, thanks, Mark. I really appreciate it being on the show tonight. Really, I really hope a lot of people are going to read the book after this because it's one of the best books I've read around birding. So thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks a million for having me. Thanks to Mark. And thank you for tuning into this episode of the Birding Life podcast. I said at the beginning that I would tell you how you can win a copy of Fancy's kids book, a full field guide for kids. Firstly, subscribe to the Birding Life SoundCloud account. Secondly, follow the Birding Life on Facebook. And then lastly, share the advert advertising this episode on Facebook as many times as possible. Each share gives you one entry into the draw. Make sure that your privacy settings are in public so that we can see that you have shared the post. Entries close on Monday the 25th of May and the book will be posted as soon as the South African Postal Services allow. Once again, thanks for listening and until next time, be blessed and happy birding.